Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm just having a ball mm. over here. Just a just a grand old time. And I'm the machine. Grand old time. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. Just so happens to be the year 1982 that we're going through. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film The King of Comedy. Laugh track. What I'm thinking is I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. Big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue this show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Now, before we get into talking about this week's film, one of the things that I know that everyone craves when they tune into our show each and every week is to understand the deep and rich fiction that me and you are building. It's what uh, separates every episode. us. The wheat mm -hmm. from the chaff. That's correct. Yeah, so uh, what's been happening in your life this past week? Oh, uh, what's been happening in your deep and rich fiction here out in the woods? I've been trying to chop trees down, but apparently mm. without an axe, it's kind of difficult. Yeah, I saw you out there with your little nail file trying to get through the cedar. I'm making a dent. Isn't working. Yeah, just uh, it's small, so you know it's going to take a little bit more time than I thought. Okay, but it's well, cold. You know, we need heat. We need fire. Luckily, we have 13 weeks left before the end of the season. So I'm sure we'll get something done before that time. <laughs> is it that, is it that late in 2022? I know, isn't it? Isn't it crazy? What the fuck is going on? I didn't realize it was the 20th of September <laughs> the oh, other day. I'm man. like, oh my God, I thought I just started. There you go, there you go. Getting well, old is fun. Hopefully DDS, DDS, the uh, tyrant of this season is mm. not going to make an appearance anytime soon and cause- The antagonist. The antagonist, yes. Because yes. that would throw a wrench into everybody's gears. All right, well, we have a big movie so to talk There's no about. story. Yeah, good. Yeah. We yeah. do have a big <laughs> movie to kind of delve into here this week because I think there's a few big names we should give our history with before we talk about the film. Oh, boy. First and foremost is Mr. Martin Scorsese. Ever heard of him? Sorry, Mar uh, Mark what? <laughs> By the way, I wish I could get to know him enough to feel comfortable calling him Marty, because I always Marty. love it when his friends call him Marty. Uh, we have talked about one Scorsese film before, which is Bringing bonus Out the episode. Dead, which we did as a bonus episode up on the Patreon. This is the first main feed review of a Scorsese film, so I thought it might be worth it just to go through your history with him, what you think of the rest of his filmography, if you have seen them. Oeuvre. Yeah, I've seen many of his films, mostly, mostly I think, the gangster films, right. um, they are iconic. So, I mean, I don't know if Mean Streets holds up though. I'm not, I've lost wow. my appreciation of Harvey Keitel, but. Oh, I, I like Harvey Keitel. I think he's so off. <laughs> he's so off. Off. Yeah. I was going to try and I ran out of time. I ran out of time so much this week because I wanted to fill in the 
two films from the 70s, the two collaborations that uh, De Niro and Scorsese did that I have not seen because I've seen Taxi Driver. Yes. I've seen this film before. Yes. I've seen Goodfellas, yes. but I've not, not seen ever seen... I've never seen Main Streets and I've never seen New York, New York. I've never seen New York, New York. Right. So I, I wanted to fill that in just to see, because this is basically right in the middle of their collaborations. Before we get too far down that road, I was going to say about your, your comment about the mobster films. I think it's really interesting that that is primarily how he's known. And by far, those are some of his my favorite films that he's done. That's not all he does. But there are actually not that many. If you look at his entire filmography, there are like five <laughs> out of the yeah. 20 or so films he's made now at this point. I mean, he had a fascination documentary filmmaking and yes. just before he did Raging Bull, he was going to quit feature mm -hmm. filmmaking altogether. Yeah, I was going to get so. into that. But yeah, he was... Th he this done. is a really dark period in Scorsese's life. Yes. When he almost died at the end of the 70s. Cocaine, baby. Yes. Yeah. If you've ever watched the documentary, The Last Waltz, I don't know if you ever have. No. It's about the Not last yet. performance of the band. Yeah. It's really good. From what I remember, it's been years since I've seen that. He is so high on coke through that strung entire movie. <laughs> it's just like so strung out. To be fair, it was the 70s. Did you read how... Uh... De Niro is credited as saving his life. Saving his life. Good for De Niro, I guess, for pulling him out of that dark period. Yeah, he's a nice guy, apparently. Uh, although mm -hmm. we'll talk about some controversies yes. with De Niro, too. I'm trying to think, like, his non... Like, Silence has been on my watch list yeah. since it broke on Netflix, and I just haven't sat down to watch it's, it yet. It's a long film. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are, because I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I finally watched it, actually, very recently. Okay. I think it's a masterpiece. I really do. I think it's so But you're so also an good. Andrew Garfield-like fanboy. True, true. So there is a bit of that. Actually, but I just think, are you an Adam Driver fanboy too? I am. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Like, so that's... And it's, of course, Driver, you're, you're but biased. To be fair, Adam Driver is in that movie for maybe five minutes. He's oh, actually okay. not in it all that long. Oh, it's really and, Andrew Garfield through the, the entire Liam thing. And Liam Neeson. Yeah. And he's got a particular set of skills. To me, it feels like Scorsese was making a Kurosawa film. That's really mm. what that movie feels like the entire way through it. Well, Kurosawa, interestingly enough, uh, really Love likes this, this movie. <laughs> yeah. P put it on his like top list of films of all time. So uh, I guess if we go through like his non-gangster films, New York, New York would be an example of that. Okay. Technically Raging Bull, although I don't know, that's a little bit yeah. iffy, I would say, because he's part I of the mob and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. But we have like After Hours, which comes out after this, Last Temptation of Christ, which is a little bit after this, Kundun, which is kind of the forgotten film that he does. We'll Bring Out the Dead, which we talked about in 1999, is really not a gangster Shutter film. Island, yeah. uh, Shutter Island, yeah, Hugo, Silence Hugo. is not a gangster film. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a bunch of examples. And I, I should say, like, it seems like he does two films and then a documentary, two films and then a documentary. Yeah. He loves Bob Dylan. He loves the Beatles. It's like he's a boomer or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I, know, I, I, I really, really like Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I actually tend to go with the films that are a little bit more offbeat and not like his major, major works. Um, what do for, you mean by that? Yeah, I've never a... been the, I will just say, I'm not the hugest fan of Taxi Driver. I know that that was yeah. considered like his like calling card. It's, it's a hard fine. watch. It's yeah. fine. It's, I don't hate it, but it's just like, uh, this doesn't do it for me as much as his like 80s, early 90s run. Yeah, Goodfellas still holds up. And I think his most recent films are very, very good. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, remember? That's Wolf the other non-gangster film. Yeah. yeah. I thought The Irishman was overblown, but I, I have a yeah. big bias against deep faking people's faces. And I think that's what killed it for me. I just couldn't yeah. keep up I mean, with it. To, and, and, and I get that because it, it doesn't look good. But The Last Hour is not that. The Last Hour, I think, is where the strongest bit of that movie. Yeah, of a three-hour film. I know. 
It was supposed to be a miniseries, <laughs> and they decided not to make it a miniseries. But that's another conversation. Oh, yeah. Scorsese created Boardwalk Empire, which is nice. Yes. But uh, yeah. at any rate, he's he's great. He he does some really fascinating camera stuff that kind of takes over action and uh, gangster filming. Borrowed technique. I mean, he's a huge film historian, so I, yes. I suppose every every iteration of a of a revolutionary camera technique is is borrowed from somebody doing something similar in the past. But but I love it when he talks about that stuff. It's like, well, this shot was from this like 1903 silent yeah, yeah. film that I loved, and like this shot over here was inspired by this 1970 uh, French film that I fell in love with. Like the, the ability for him to make those connections is is really fascinating to sit down and listen to. Definitely, I think it's his collaboration with Thelma Shoemaker, who is his longtime editor. Basically, he's edited. I think all of his films from Mean Streets on, uh, at least from Taxi Driver on. I think a lot of what we think of as Martin Scorsese is also to do with her. And he's actually said that too. He's like, honestly, 50% of what a Martin Scorsese movie is, is because of her and how she edits things together for him. Yeah, the pacing is so important. Pacing is super important. And he, but he's yeah known for really cutting to music, using music effectively mm-hmm. in his films. Freeze frames. Montage is a big thing that he likes yeah. to use, like flashing back and Loves. forth between multiple things. Reframing stuff. Huge, huge, huge heavyweight in the history of not just American mm-hmm. film, but world cinema. I think my fa- most favorite recent thing that has happened when Parasite won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Actually, I think it was Best Director. I think it was when... Oh, Bong gosh, I can't remember now. It was, maybe it was when, when Parasite won Best International Feature, whatever it was. When one of the awards that Bong Joon-ho won, he got up and was like, he said this beautiful quote. He says, and the person who said that is Mr. Martin Scorsese. And everyone like just stood up and clapped for Martin Scorsese during Bong Joon-ho's acceptance speech. But he, he wanted that. Like he was trying to say like, yes, but I'm part of this tradition of of filmmakers that span Sir, the globe. Who watches the Oscars anymore? I know. Well, you can watch it on YouTube. It's fine. <laughs> Well, the other thing about him is he experienced so many different styles. Yes. Um, so he's he's fun. He's an auteur in the inverse way that we think of auteurs. You know, mm-hmm. the auteur stereotype is like they have this one approach that is just so unique and, you know, they're like subset stuff. I, th- I think that's the important thing because if you look like someone who I do enjoy for the most part, like a David Fincher. Like David Fincher's films look like David Fincher's films, yes. um, maybe with the exception of Mank. But other than that, it's like you kind of understand that this is a David Fincher film. Whereas Martin Scorsese will very often look at the source material and be like, okay, what does this actually require from a mm-hmm. filmmaking standpoint? So when we look at like The King of Comedy versus Raging Bull that happened right before this, he was totally very intentional. It's like, we have to make this more grittier, more like feeling like it's... Um, like a TV show almost, yeah. Like a TV show, yeah. Like yeah. That, that's what he... Because that's going to fit. A very dark one. But yeah. yeah. This is going <laughs> to fit the subject matter more than a Raging Bull beautiful cinematography is going to yes. fit it. So I, I mentioned here before, this is essentially right smack in the middle of the 10 film collaborations that De Niro and Scorsese have done together. So let's talk about Robert De Niro. I don't know if we've actually talked about him on the show No, yet. surprisingly hasn't yeah. come up. You know, it's Robert De Niro... You know, 71 was just around the time he's kind of appearing. And then 99, he's already in this waning period. So we haven't really yeah. gotten there yet. Yeah, Robert De Niro, of course, is considered one of the great American actors, not just of his generation, but I think it will go down as all oh, yeah. time. Um, it is often surprising that he does things other than angry man in mafia films, right? Because right, right, his right. most renowned movies, you know, Godfather, um, Raging Bull, I mean, he's a boxer, but Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino, the Deer et cetera. Hunter. Heat, yeah. Deer Hunter. He's, he's kind of like a crazy dude, but he does a lot of comedies. And yeah. as we'll see in this film, 
He's actually not that bad at it. I remember when I was in high school, the half joke is that he's not like he's not good at crying. Like he like that mm. drama thing. Like he doesn't he can't be like a romantic lead in a right. traditional sense. But he's sense. intense. He has that he's intense. So intense. I grew up loving him. Late 80s, early 90s, that's like De Niro and Pacino's oh, era. Yeah. Like you oh, can't yeah, yeah. wake up in the morning and like movies and not love both those guys or like, you know, that that pantheon of actors. I like when Al Pacino screams. But certainly by the 2000s, I think intentionally he's aware of getting older and he's making a lot of silly films. So, you know, it's kind of it's changed his uh, reputation, I think, a little bit. I think, I think so, too. Like, I mean, hey, do what makes you happy, right? Like, whatever. I'm not going <laughs> to cast aspersions to films that he's wanting to make. That being said, like when I was growing up, much like you, it was like De Niro, De Niro, De Niro. Like he was said with such reverence. And that was coming from the 70s, 80s. And he was still putting in this huge amount of quality work throughout the 90s. I don't know if it was like just one movie that caused what I perceive as the decline. But I definitely think that Showtime. that moment, that moment of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, yeah. Was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like he can be good in comedies. I think he understands his persona and he can lean into that and, and be funny. You will. We'll talk about his process in crafting the character inside of this movie later on. I think he excels when yeah he takes the time, studies a character, gets into that, that, that beam. Yeah. The few times he's hosted Saturday Night Live are among the worst hosting jobs I've ever seen. <laughs> well, he's like a very soft-spoken, shy guy. Like yes, uh, in public, you know. And I think that's the weird thing is like if he does like a guest spot on the Ricky Gervais show Extras, for instance. So I think, oh, he's really funny in this. And then you see something that is like you have to nail this in one take. You're in the live studio audience. He isn't good at at improv. In mm -hmm. those situations, he comes off a bit stilted and yeah, like he's out of his element sort of thing. But it's like he's wanted to become known almost in this like later half of his career as a comedic actor, as a comedian of, of some sorts. He was even in, I think, the movie, The Comedian. But then also like the war with grandpa and all these other things that feel like they're just like direct to video things, which feels like so sad for me, well, for someone who is such a big name throughout the rest of my life. I mean, one thing I think we're starting to see this backlash of the effects of being a method actor. You know, we're mm. seeing not just De Niro, like Dan Day-Lewis and uh, yeah. Christopher, not Christopher, what's that? Uh, who's Batman? Oh, Christian Bale. Christian Bale. We're starting to see this burnout because De Niro looks like a guy, and I think we see this, where, you know, whatever role he's in, he's so good at becoming that person. But, you know, he, he was the original guy that like gained all this weight and lost yeah, the weight. Yeah, yeah. And then Christian Bale would one-up him, you know, with the machinist and then Batman. Yeah. But that's kind of the same modality. So that kind of intensity is a young man's game. And uh, my experience with my dad in particular is that sort of stressful anxiety of the boomers trying to survive the 80s uh, made them pretty difficult to be around. <laughs> But yeah, now that my yeah. dad's a grandpa, he's always trying to make a joke and take things like her. It doesn't pass well sometimes because, uh, <laughs> you know, he's like 76. But I think that's what De Niro's... No, give me some of these examples of these like joke bombs he's throwing at you. These like no, well-crafted, yeah. humorous takes of the but modern I think that's life. what's going on. I think he's in a reflective mode now where he doesn't have to take it seriously. He's already, mm -hmm. you know, settled, super rich, uh, has a lot of uh, clout. But he also never took himself that seriously as a... Mm -hmm. individual, I think, in public. The algorithm sent me an interview with Stephen Colbert from like this year, and mm. he's just trying to ham it 
you know, is he successful? Who knows? But right. Well, talking about buffoons, let's talk about Jerry Lewis because that's the third and final person I think we should talk about. Which I uh, I would say maybe perhaps I'm wrong, but even if you were a teenager, early twenty something in 1982. I don't know how big of a name Jerry Lewis would really have been for those people. I guess unless you were watching the muscular dystrophy thing, I was gonna uh, say, telethons that were on doing TV. The telethons, but yeah. This is definitely a bare minimum a decade past his heyday. Yeah, I mean he's he's the name of the '60s, right? Yeah. I and mean, that's his big thing. Really, the '40s and '50s. Is like sure, when a sure. lot of his movies with Dean Martin and stuff were happening. That's right. Like when he was actually young, young. But I, I mean, what I, I guess what I meant is his lasting personas already 20 years bygone and when i was growing up the telethons were already being made fun of on saturday Night live because yes. you know they're already silly I, I mean i don't think he was the first to do a telethon but he no. was the focal point for sure during the mm. 80s he's proto jim carrey he's uh, a guy that when you're in that mo like especially a young boy young man where you want to see someone do a pratfall or smash things with his face or say something really dumb or make really elastic faces jerry lewis was very good at that. Well, we'll see in this film. I actually like him a lot as a, as an asshole. And there are a lot of illusions that he was this person. Oh, in his very much life. so. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. I feel like he could have leaned into this or maybe even a little bit more. Patty. He's probably scared to. I mean, maybe we learn with comedians. I mean, I think they're all suffering from something. It's, you have to be a person with a lot of trauma, I think, to get up on a stage to try to make other people laugh. And then if you're, I don't know, there's the comparison with him and Jim, I mean, Jim Carrey has lost his mind. Yes. yes. <laughs> and apparently he's not particularly nice to be around uh, when he's on the other side of the fence. So I have a feeling this is understated for Jerry Lewis because uh, you know, he still has somewhat a reputation. He's still trying to raise money for MS. If he comes out here and goes full sociopath, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, I think it's true <laughs> enough. I think that... Um, Maybe it's just one of those things, like the first time, for instance, I saw Robin Williams in a dramatic role. I was like, oh my God, like you're really effective at this because yes. I'm expecting you to make me laugh and you're terrifying because you're not here to make people laugh. From what I recall in this movie, Jerry Lewis very rarely tries to make someone laugh no. <laughs> in this movie. It's like the behind the scenes of him being very serious. Look, I don't think I've ever sat down and watched a Jerry Lewis movie, to be perfectly honest. I've seen Nutty the clips Professor. of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, like I've seen clips of The Nutty Professor. I've seen clips of the one that he goes on campus. Anyways, I've seen the, some of the uh, Martin and Lewis uh, comedy bits because those pop up on, on YouTube because I'm a weirdo like that. You are weird. The, the, I was going to say classic. I don't know how classic it is, but there's a moment on one of those telethons where him and Dean Martin reunite mm. again because they hadn't spoken to each other for like 15 or 20 years. So I've seen yeah. that moment. But I, I think honestly, I know more of like the parodies of Jerry Lewis rather than Jerry Lewis himself. Like Professor Frank on The Simpsons is just a Jerry Lewis impression. Like that's yes. all they're making fun of. Even there's some stuff in like uh, Mel Brooks and, and, and Gene Wilder and the producers is like really playing up that idea of a Jerry Lewis character. When you have anybody who is famous for buffoonery, it's not going to hold up very well. Mm. Like you, you tried to watch, I haven't done this either, but uh, you, you tried to rewatch Ace Ventura. You yeah. know, it's not it's not going to hold up well because the context of what those characters were. I mean, actually, you know what's interesting? I just thought of uh, like timelessness. You know, if you watch a Charlie Chaplin or a Buster Keaton film, Buster Keaton, they still hold up pretty well. So yes. something there's something about in that in-between period, maybe it was too culturally intertwined with, for Jerry Lewis, there's going to be a lot of weird racial problems yes. and uh, characterizations of, of people, men and women. With Jim Carrey, it's going to be a lot of uh, homophobia and uh, 
Yeah. Jokes well, about think... being mentally in, in, you know, incompetent because that was what was funny in that era. Whereas maybe Buster Keaton was more just, I can't believe he didn't die. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, there's that part of it. In, in my opinion, I think it comes down to straight slapstick has a mm. better chance of of, uh, surviving. Know, be, of surviving becoming relevant as soon as you do like here's my funny voice and here's my current right. observations on media it's like peter that just, sellers and brown yeah. face right right like right. that only has a certain amount of shelf life before like uh maybe not or it's like oh that voice is maybe a little bit annoying or it's like i don't even know who you're referencing in this joke like yeah yeah I, I've watched documentaries on like Lenny Bruce and stuff like that. And I, you know, I did learn, I mean, we might as well just do the section quickly. Uh, he apparently invented as a director, the uh, live video while shooting a film that I didn't know. So he had like the, uh, oh, the CCTV cool. or something. So he was the first person who was like, we don't want to wait for dailies because I need to know if this is funny right now. Right now. Yeah. 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 The other thing that's interesting, he taught film and you know, one of his students was, uh, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Weird, right? But yeah, he was a director, uh, was in a comedy team with Dean Martin for many years. I just, yeah. I listened to this podcast called You Must Remember This. And they always do stories on like old Hollywood. And so one of their mini seasons was on Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, which was fascinating to me because I knew some of their story. But I didn't the even know they thing. were a comedy duo. Oh, really? I, I, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. But the, the hilarious thing about that is, you know, Dean Martin is the straight man. Jerry Lewis is the big buffoon. Play off of each other super well. They are ridiculously popular. I should say in the 40s and into the 50s, like ridiculously popular. So the opposite of this podcast. And this is like pre-Rat Pack too, which I think is also yeah. fascinating. But then they break up for a whole host of different reasons. And everyone was like, well, Dean Martin's going to fade into obscurity and Jerry Lewis is going to be like the next big star going off on his own. People they were in right France, for a bit. Yeah. And, they, and they were right. They were right yeah. for like the first like two, three years. The people in France loved Jerry Lewis. They thought he was like this comedic genius and like had film festivals around his films. And then Dean Martin joins the Rat Pack and it really starts to like shift over the years to the point where, I don't know, I don't know if you would feel this way, but I think the average person probably knows Dean Martin more than Jerry Lewis. I would say just his name recognition. I don't know. I, just, I, just for the simple fact that Dean Martin still gets played in like malls for during Christmas. We have this discussion when we talk, especially now that we're getting older mm -hmm. about historical relevance. I'm going to guess that most people don't remember either of them, to be honest with you. I mean, how many times do we hear a crooner in Christmas and even ask who's singing it? It's basically elevator music at this point. You know, it's just part of the subconscious. Even the Mariah Carey song. I mean, mm. she still has notoriety because she's still in front of the paparazzi, but it's it's so entrenched with what Christmas is. Mm. I don't know if kids these days are like, oh, I wonder who sings this song. It's just like, yeah, that's Christmas. Let's move on. Whatever was next on Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many people even remember who the Rat Pack are? Like, right. I couldn't, I can name you three. Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin. Who are the other two? Joey Bishop was there for a bit and who, who would like literally no one knows about anymore. Right. And the other guy who I never remember his name. <laughs> Nobody gives a shit, right? And yeah. uh, and I think the three of those guys survived the Rat Pack just because, uh, I mean, I always wonder how Dean Martin became the master of the roast, like the inventor of the roast, but I didn't know he was a comedian to start, right? Yeah, I thought he was why. just a singer, so. And he was doing that to just get money because he was bankrupt. <laughs> so he just did some roasts. That's basically <laughs> why he started. Who wasn't? Who yeah. wasn't? Um, so just briefly, before we take our break and then start talking about the movie, um, you've seen this movie before? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember yeah. what you thought of it the last time you watched it? 
I remember thinking it was a lot darker than I was... I didn't know... I think I was thinking it was just a comedy. I, I watched this when I was young, like mm -hmm. probably in my late teens or early 20s, you know, on a VHS rental. So, I remember feeling very off-put by it. So, I, I don't hold it in high regard and I it's not a movie that I would have suggest to other people to watch until perhaps now, but that's a whole other thing we'll right. discuss. So yeah, it was many, many years ago. I'm beginning mm -hmm. to realize how old I am, Kyle, the more we do this podcast, uh, 25 or 30 years ago. Wow. Fuck you for bringing me on this. Yeah. And I don't have to reflect. Well, it might be that long. <laughs> it might be that long for me too, because I definitely watched this movie for the first time when I was living with my parents. So definitely I would have been a teenager the last time I watched this movie. I was getting into movies more. I was getting into Scorsese more. And the art on the um, VHS, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, this looks weird and offbeats and this will probably be right up my alley. <laughs> and so I remember enjoying it. I do remember enjoying mm. this movie outside of a, sp a few specific scenes. Um, I remember Jerry Lewis being chased through the streets. I remember him being kidnapped and I remember like his final like little stand-up set sort of thing but the other specifics of this movie I just I'm not it's not really top of mind there for me so I'm excited to yes. jump back into this and see what they think as an adult uh, about this movie <laughs> as a grown man <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's do that let's go take a break we'll go thank some sponsors and then when we return we'll be talking about the king of comedy <laughs> Dave Who's your favorite celebrity? Wow, what is, that? <laughs> what is that? That's a question that's asked in this very movie. Uh, who's my favorite celebrity? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, I don't come up with a name. Uh, yeah, because you don't but, like people. That's why. Yeah, I all of them, none of them. I don't oh, really. No, I don't know. I, I don't really, you know, follow or worship one person. Well, I'm not talking about worshiping. I'm just saying, like, who isn't that what celebrity is? If they're if they're name, no. No, yes. I think you're, I, th I think you're conflating two different things. Celebrity just means, in my opinion, a popular person in the in the in the public's eye. Yeah, and what does that what does that actually mean? It's worship. <laughs> I I think you and I have very different definitions of of celebrity. That's specifically. why I don't have an answer. All right, well, you go, you go. But 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 I was just going to say, like, there's not a person who is in the movie. Like, I want to check that out because they're in it. I guess directors, you know, Denis mm -hmm. Villeneuve, I, I would right. watch anything he makes. Wow, fanboy worshipper over here. <laughs> David Fincher, although, I mean, I'm starting to get worried about how twisted I feel when I leave one of his films. <laughs> Dude's uh -huh. messed up. Scorsese, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't consider them celebrities though, right? Right. All right, your turn, your turn. Um, If we're going to do like traditional celebrity, like, I mean, actor, singer, whatever, happens to be i think you already mentioned him honestly the the person who i think right at this very moment i'd be the most interested in just like sitting down and just talking with is probably andrew garfield which makes me mm. super basic i know but any talk show appearance i've seen of him he seems like a weirdly as much as you can be down to earth person who knows that could be a total front as well i have no idea but he seems like an interesting person. He's like he's like you, right? No social media. I don't think he even owns a cell phone. Like he's just, he's a he's like a, a totally phone. detached dude. <laughs> you know, look, I I have an I have an iPhone mm -hmm. thirteen. I use mm -hmm. the screen. Andrew Garfield. All right. Yeah. The so uh, worst Spider Man. Skinny white boy. Actually, he was a very good Spider Man, just not a great Peter Parker. But we're not here to talk about Spider Man, Dave. We're here to talk about. <laughs> Did he ad fill up the copy. tights though, Kyle? Oh, he filled up those tights all right. 
Uh, Kyle Davis the Machine, I should let you all know, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Should have said Banksy. That would have been the cooler answer. Should have said Banksy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is Banksy still a thing? I guess so. I don't know. Is that funny? I how... recently did rewatch the uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop documentary, yeah. which is, I think, super fascinating. But it is also because it's very likely its own inverted completely art made piece. up. Yeah. yeah, that he directed himself. <laughs> yes, whomever he yes. is, he's become his own worst enemy, which I think he would probably intended. Presuming it's a he, but I think is it the Daft Punk guy? Who is it again? That the latest conspiracy theory? I actually think it is uh, the same person who Shakespeare and Jack the Ripper. He did all three of them. <laughs> So a woman. I'm telling you about the Alberta Blue Cross. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Blue Cross. And even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online anytime on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, you can head on over to ab.bluecross. Okay, wait for it. CA. Ooh, Canadian. It's a Canadian, a Canadian service. Domain. So sorry, Americans. Kyle, uh, for those of our listeners who don't live in Calgary, uh, what has the temperature lows been this week in September? Well, it's I've gotten down to like cold. two or three degrees Celsius. Yeah. Actually, I saw like one. There was a frost warning two There was a frost ago. warning, yeah. I bring that up because our second sponsor is Park Power and they have a read, Kyle, that mm -hmm. winter is coming. Remember how oh. we would avoid this all quote unquote summer for the yeah. two months we get? It's like, uh, remember Game of Thrones being a thing? <laughs> winter is coming and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now mm -hmm. is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they are on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy and you can feel good knowing you are supporting a local business and helping give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.com. Wait for this one. Mm. CA. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, we have sat down. We have both now rewatched The King of Comedy. I actually know based on some letterbox snooping that we're in for a big fight. But second of all. <laughs> Why? I haven't rated anything on Letterboxd. Oh, you have yet? a star rating next to it right now, so. What? Yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That must be accidental. But let's say, Dave, that me and you have decided to go and uh, enjoy a night of frivolity and go to a comedy club here in the city. And as we take our seats and I grab my little Coke to like sip on throughout the evening, uh, an upstart comedian in a polyester jacket walks over directly to you and stands in front of I you. I would just turn away. I would just walk away because that's just, <laughs> there's so many things wrong already with this scenario. Pushes a VHS copy of the King of Comedy your way. <laughs> Again, and demands, a lot of red flags. Yeah. <laughs> what is this movie about? What the fuck is this movie about? How would you answer that? What is the plot of the King of what Comedy? The plot? Let's say a presumably aspiring comedian. Mm-hmm was willing to go to any lengths to get his big break on the most popular talk show, including perhaps breaking the law. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. A little bit of an unhinged character, we might say, that <laughs> Robert De Niro plays. Yeah. And so on this rewatch, Dave, what were your thoughts? 
Yeah, I really liked it. I just opened Letterboxd and one of two things happened because I mm -hmm. don't know how to see if I actually wrote anything. We didn't. I suspect the three-star rating was when I was cataloging when I first installed the app of mm. films that I've seen before, which kind of lines up with what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. In this rewatching, I really enjoyed it. I think it is quite disturbing, of course. Yes. But you know, I think the most gripping part is Scorsese's change of visual language. You know, it is not just gritty, but very weird and static and just makes you feel very claustrophobic because there's just something really, uh, yeah, unhinged about the whole thing. It comes apart as it moves. Yeah. yeah. The subtle thing I think that he's doing, and this doesn't always work for me for films that use like static cameras, but this is also filmed. I think you said it kind of like a TV show, Yeah. but like an unsettling TV show. I was like, oh, this feels Something's <laughs> off. like it's going yeah. off the rails as we kind of go through this entire, entire enterprise. He mentioned some short film or some silent film that he's emulating throughout this entire thing. I've never seen it, so I have no idea. But yeah, it's effective. It's effective through the entire thing. You, I, you know, maybe it's this uh, conflict of very static and um, yeah, very strange perspectives like it, it's not like everything is very close up there are some very wide shots but in a distorted not a fisheye mm -hmm. but very wide wide things in cost for spaces like he'll use that in the office reception area yes so it just makes everything feel a little surreal and i think i mean i didn't catalog this but i don't know if it's the camera work or just de niro but as this thing unravels and things get crazier and crazier yeah i, I was getting sweaty it was hard to look away and i was very into it there are parts of it that are a little draggy. I don't, I don't know, draggy. Mm. Like, it's not perfect. Like, uh, I found myself kind of wavering in the um, end of the first act. I don't know. There was just something about it that I, I wasn't sure. But the climax fascinating. I don't know about the ending per se. It, like, it, it's meant to be satirical, right? Yeah. But well, well I, want, I, want, I want to take a moment and really delve into the ending at the, at the culmination of our conversation here. Sure. So, well, well, but I agree. There's, there's, I think, a lot to be said about the, the actual ending, the way that this movie wraps up. I do think this is perfect. I think this is a Scorsese masterpiece, Dave. Ooh, wow. That's what so I you're think about go for this a movie. Five star. All right. All right. Tell me why. I think it is capital G great. And <laughs> I think it is, there's three different things, or sorry, there's three different themes I think are kind of culminating throughout this, which is the idea of celebrity, the idea of obsession, and the idea of, um, I guess, pursuing your dreams to the ultimate extent of what that looks like, this kind of delusional sense of grandeur that, that that people have there's also i will i'll just bookmark this because i want to come back to it there is a meta element to this movie that i really deeply enjoy if you do know a lot about johnny carson and tonight show because a lot of this is delving into kind of some of the behind the scenes things from there things that are actually happening mm -hmm. if, even if we take that out i just think that this I find uh rupert pumpkin see i just did it pumpkin. i misspelled mm -hmm. i misspoke his name Rupert Pupkin is such a fascinating character because he is completely self-deluded and thinking he's this fantastic comedian that he can bypass essentially the work that it takes to actually get to the level that uh, the Jerry Lewis character is at. We can talk about nepotism and all that kind of stuff, but anyone who has got to the upper echelons of fame has put some time into that to get to that level. You don't just get to jump 
past that. And, and the way that's kind of revealed to us, that, that sense of sinisterness, I like the way that even his plan is slowly revealed, like how the Sandra uh, Sandra Bernhardt uh-huh. character looks like she's this crazy fanatic. And then you find out like, oh, she's working for him they're and friends. how that's revealed. No, and they're friends. not for him, but yeah, they're working together. They're working together in collusion yeah. to each other. The way that he's concocted this whole idea of him and his girlfriend that he's trying to date, but like that's not really how that's she's looking wife. at it. That's his real wife. I yeah. learned that yeah, after. And uh, you mentioned as well, well, uh, near the beginning, I think Jerry Lewis it has a great performance it's in this amazing. movie. Yes, yes. I, I think there's that sense of like, again, with the Johnny Carson thing, it's apparently that's what it was. He was charming and effervescent on camera, but as soon as those cameras went off, it's like, that was my job. Leave me alone. I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> Don't bother me. And lonely. That sort of thing. So and, isolated and lonely. And yeah, so isolated and that kind of that, that feeling of loneliness. They even mention it, like he walks through crowded streets so that... People won't bother him, basically. Protect himself, yeah. Only in New York. Only in New York would that work, yeah. (laughs) And I think the other fascinating thing is is that I I understand why critics had such a wild time with this movie when it came out. Because if you read of the time, almost everyone says it. Like, departure for Scorsese. Departure from Scorsese. This doesn't feel like a Scorsese film. And I think the biggest reason is if you've watched enough Scorsese films, you are innately expecting there to be some sort of payoff, like someone's going to get shot in the back of the head mm-hmm. or pummeled mm-hmm. in the face or something, and it never happens. Yeah. It always kind of ratchets up and then it gets pulled back. It gets ratcheted up and gets pulled back. And him being so like enthusiastic and calm about this ridiculous thing that he's doing makes it even more creepy. Because it's like, yeah, I kidnapped him. I might put him here. It's like, he's going to die if you don't do what I say. And it's like, okay, great. And he just moves on to the next scene. He thinks he's speaking rationally, but he's seeing the craziest things. And so, yeah, all that just uh, worked for me as a as kind of this character study in delusion. And weirdly enough, even though I don't know if like a late night TV would work as a as a modern exploration of this idea, I think the themes it is exploring are like super relevant to 2022. Yeah, they still make conversations about this in film. It's gotten so much more twisted, kind of like you're bringing up, people aren't ready to have this in a muted form anymore. It's always got to end up with a serial killer or somebody getting sexually assaulted or both or, you know, all this kind of stuff. But celebrity culture is, and this is why when you ask me, I do identify with this problem that... You know, being famous is more important than, you know, being, let's say, content or or having some kind of uh, balance in your life. The American dream of uh, money and notoriety outweighing any kind of personal, Mm -hmm. you know, spiritual growth, if you will. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I sound like a a fucking hippie, but I think that's a problem. I think the more I dig into some of these uh, actors and directors past, it's always been there. You know, um, we have terms like cancel culture now, but I think all of that also stems from this idea that we worship words that come out of people who actually are just human beings, but they're immortalized in some sense. So in this case, it's a late night talk show host because that was a really big thing for a little while. And you're right, it wouldn't be today because nobody really gives a shit about late night TV, but you know, it could be easily cast... uh, you know, with uh, with a Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> or a Tom yeah, Cruise like, type I, of person, I, 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 or a Dua Lipa or a Lady Gaga, whatever, like whatever people like. Yeah, I don't... Like, like nowadays it would be either a period piece where you'd make it back in this time, or, or social media, like a TikTok it would be a, star, a Twitch streamer, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. That's who you would Absolutely. be going after, sort of thing. Um, and and I think could still be as fascinating, oh, yeah. honestly. All of my stalkers are pretty cool. The thing that I think is fascinating about this movie is like, yes, that's all wrapped up into that. But the, the, the Pupkin character very specifically, yes, is idolizing fame. But I don't think he's actually idolizing 
celebrities. I think that's the interesting part of his character. He wants to be famous. He yeah. wants to be the per- person who's in front of the camera, and he's willing to take them out if 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 necessary. He doesn't really care about the celebrities as people or as even as objects. They're a stepping stone so he himself can become famous. And I think that's actually an interesting distinction of his of his journey through it. Where you see the autograph collectors at the beginning, they are they do care about the celebrities. So they really want to have those those autographs. But he even says, like, I don't care about the autographs. I don't care about the actual physical things. I want to be the famous person that people are coming to and asking for their autograph. Well, like, that's what I he's mean, craving. Yeah. I, isn't the idea more that he was that person and then he kind of wanted to transcend that? I mean, he's got a book and he's got stories about mm-hmm. what he had to do to get these signatures. And that turning point, like you're bringing up, is that he assigned his own book. So, yes, yeah, as yeah. soon as that happens you know that it's gone to the next level. Because <laughs> at that point, you're, you're just like, oh, it's just a creepy guy. And he's like, you know, talking to himself. I love this idea. His mom's yelling at him. The unfaced mom you yeah, know, yeah. in the basement. But as soon as you see him, that he signed his own book, you're like, oh, shit. This is like, this is the next level. There's something particular. Can I just wrong. ask, what do you think his budget was for making those like standees of all the people <laughs> in his basement? Because <laughs> well, so many. The full wall uh, yeah. print of the studio audience. As a photographer, Kyle, that is a very expensive process <laughs> to wallpaper a photograph yeah. of a studio audience. Although, you know, we could imply that. I, I was half expecting because the like all, almost opening scene of him living in his head having the conversation with Jerry Lewis in the mm-hmm. restaurant. You know, midway through the movie, I was thinking, is this all going to be a hallucination? You know, is it meant to just all be in his head and none of it's actually happening, which which is not where it went. But yeah, like the cardboard cutouts of Liza Minnelli and, uh, mm-hmm. and the studio audience. So I was like, is this actually just... Can, can I tell you this, though? This? Well, fun, fun fact, as far as I understand it, um, I didn't know this until last year, and it, which is wild since I'm a big Liza Minnelli fan. Uh, her and Martin Scorsese dated for a while. Oh, and she was supposed to actually be in this movie more, but was cut out. And then it's just her standee that is there. In oh, the like movie. she actually uh, shot some scenes for this? Like a, a short scene, apparently. Because there's yeah. like other celebrities, like uh, Dr. Joyce Brothers, Victor yeah, Borga, Victor Tony Borga. Randall is in this for That's like right. a few minutes. So Why was Tony Randall ever famous? Uh, he TV? was in the TV show Odd Couple. That was yeah, uh, his big thing. Yeah. I love his I voice, like- though. I actually like Victor Borga a lot because uh, I think my parents... I was gonna, I, I, I'm actually surprised that you know who Victor Borga is. Yeah, I think my... Well, my mom's a classical musician, right? So oh, I think yeah. that we had tapes of his comedic performances at home. Yeah, he's Because he's hilarious, right? There's no other reason why I would have seen his bits on the piano, but he's hilarious. And uh, I know he's old and I know it'll be hard to find, but uh, if anyone listening to has not watched him, you want to talk about like slapstick that will hold up, He's a, he's a fantastic performer. That, that's the type of stuff that does really, really hold up. I think, um, so it's the William Tell Overture and he's, but he's playing it upside down. And he's like, oh God. And he flips yeah. the music sheet around and then plays it normally. It's like, oh my yeah. God, that's actually really funny. Genius. <laughs> that's a genius little bit for people um, to go and see on YouTube. Yeah. Did you find like, were you a bit disappointed when he popped up and didn't do a bit? Because I was. Yeah, a little bit. I was like, oh, can't you just do like a little piano thing? <laughs> just a little, yeah. One mistake, but... So those bits are good. I think they're in there very effectively. I think it would be a little bit overlong if it was like... If they were there for much longer. Yeah, I yeah. even like the Martin Scorsese little cameo that happens in this too. Oh, he's like, in, I didn't even notice. What, what yeah. are you doing? When Tony Randall comes out and, he's, he's, and he tells like the cue card person, yeah, yeah. Like, make sure these goes by quick. It's Martin Scorsese who says, take that thing out of your collar. And he grabs it out of his... Oh, the paper I was even... Yeah, I was just... That's Marty. That's Marty right there. Only I get to call him that. The only... Here's one small criticism I'll say. 
<laughs> the name of the show. It's no. called the Jerry Langford show. I'm like, nope, it would not be called that as a late night show. It just wouldn't be. That's a daytime TV show that that's what it would be called. Because that would be like the Mike Douglas show or Jenny right, Jones right, or right. Donahue. Any late night show has always been called either late night or the tomorrow show or Didn't whatever. Didn't Jerry Lewis have a show called the Jerry Lewis show? I have no I idea. I think so. And I think, you know, Carol Burnett had a show named after herself. Yeah, but it was in the talk show. I'm saying they talk, talk show shows. specifically. Yeah, they were variety shows. Yeah. Yeah, maybe Jerry Lewis was a variety show too. Yeah. I thought Sandra Bernard was great. Uh, yeah, I I'll think just all the actors are actually cast yeah. very, very well. She's nuts and she has a lot of her own controversies, which I think are mirrored mm -hmm. in the way she portrays this character. <laughs> I knew her primarily as a guest star on Roseanne, honestly, yeah. for years. I didn't even really know she did much for, for film work, but uh, yeah. yeah, she's unhinged in this. Unhinged. But she, yeah, there was a whole, I think I knew of her because I didn't watch Roseanne, but she had that uh, controversy with Madonna. And that was a mm -hmm. particular homophobic time. So the idea that they were lesbian lovers was a big mm -hmm. tabloid problem. But then I read about what happened in the 90s <laughs> and her being maybe racist. And it was kind of like, you know, it's it's kind of nice cause, uh, nuts because she looks like an angry person. And apparently she may very well be because uh, she plays it very well in this movie. She's nuts. I saw her at a uh, comedy club in New York City once. Oh, Interesting how'd that enough. go? Very racist. No, I... I uh... <laughs> was she funny? Uh, it was a Yelling. weird night because it wasn't really stand-up that was happening. I kind of wish I had gone on a different night, to be honest with you, because it was more... That was the second election of Obama, I want to say. So it was, I think, a debate night. Huh. Um, and between Too him and charged. the Mormon guy, whoever, whatever his name was. McCain, no, I'm McCain. Doesn't uh, matter. Anyways, it was... Um, Mitt Romney? No. Yes, Mitt Romney. It was a debate night, and so they were basically doing the um, Mystery Science Theater 3000 thing, where the debate was happening. They were making little snide comments throughout the night. Uh, and it was mildly humorous. But that was also the time I saw Howard Stern in the urinal. So that was fun. Who's taller? He's pretty tall. I was taller, yeah. <laughs> Just saying. But who's Just longer? Saying. No. I'm not. <laughs> I told him Baba Booey, and then I ran out, so that's... <laughs> Giggling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I talked about the meta-ness of this movie, and I do want to get into a little bit of like the whole Johnny Carson of it all, because the original person that they approached was Johnny Carson to be in this movie, which in a weird way, I have no idea how much of an actor he really could have been, but probably would have made me like this movie even more so had it actually been the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson that they were they were following along with. But how much do you know about the history of Johnny Carson? Well, not, I mean... He had a stalker instance, but I think it was after this movie. I'm pretty sure. Um, I think it was simultaneous. No, it was happening before this movie. Are you sure? Okay. It yes, doesn't matter. because the writer based it off of that incident. Oh. Well, it wasn't with Jack Parr or somebody else? No. You know, everybody knows of Johnny Carson and uh, his stage persona, but I don't know a lot about him as a person. I know that he's not particularly well-liked on his personal life. Mm-hmm. But he's very private, like many of these uh, overblown celebrities are. Mm -hmm. um, I do know, I mean, we saw it. I mean, you, does this movie, hold up, people compare this to the Joker, right? Uh, you can still make technically this movie. There's something yeah. about talk show hosts that are, having a real talk show host in this film, I think would have cheapened it. Because I think that it would be too, it'd be too much, too overwhelming for a casual viewer to realize that this is not a documentary. <laughs> Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. it would. Uh, you need a little fiction in it to follow crazy people. Otherwise, it, it, if it's too real, it's even grosser. I think. 
mean, people would actually misrepresent this film. Part of the reason, I don't know if it was Carson himself or someone around him, but they did bring up the fact like what Johnny Carson quipped the fact that like, I only do one takes because that's how he did his talk show, right? Like I don't do multiple takes. That was his quip. But someone around him also said like, I think there was this worry about emboldening other stalkers to yeah. come after him. That he was like, I don't want to engage in that at all. Of course. I mean, we see this all the time with people, uh, crazy people quoting movies and media as a reason to continue doing the next layer of something. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, this movie's going to inspire stalkers in general. Yes. I, there was an article that popped up in my algorithm of a woman in Korea who was just murdered by her stalker. And I feel yes. like this idea of stalking, it, you know, it's obviously a human problem. It's in many films of every generation. So, you know, plays and all this stuff uh, from times of yore. But Kyle, why do people stalk people? It's fucking weird. I don't man. know, but it, it, it has happened to a few different late night show hosts too. Yeah. Letterman had his stalker that he like woke up and she was in his bedroom, which yeah. terrifies me. She was probably a fan of this film. <laughs> possibly, possibly. But I was, I was just going to get into like the, the, the offhanded comment they make about like stepping in for a sick Jack Parr was something that Johnny Carson did. Yeah, his yeah. little outfit that he's wearing while he's playing golf. Like Johnny Carson played tennis a lot. That's ex the exact outfit he wore when he went uh, and played tennis. So okay. there's all these like little things that they're hanging on this to be very clear. Yeah, I didn't it's know. Ed is who who is this secondhand man, and that was Ed McMahon. Like that, I saw. Yeah, that part I got. Uh, I don't know enough about Johnny Carson to know about his wardrobe, Kyle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Speaking of stalking, same. speaking of stalking, no, yeah, I guess I, that, that was a little over my head. I know, I mean, you can tell if you're our age that this is supposed to be a Johnny Carson parallel uh, with yeah. the Ed Big Man, but you know, the specific nuances were way over my head. I, I'm not a big late night television guy. I didn't watch a lot of Letterman or Fallon or any of these guys. Oh, Brian. See, I, I did. I think that's the other thing that makes me love this movie a lot is that being like the obnoxious, like super fan of a late night television talk shows specifically they're doing these like little call outs and callbacks and, and allusions and stuff that really tickle me i guess for for lack gross. of a better word gross the text i sent to you that said like which is worrying is like how close i think i kind of became to be the robert de niro character in this movie because there's a point in my life where like well yeah like if i'm in the right spot of course they're going to choose me to be like the successor of david letterman why wouldn't they <laughs> choose me and I've put in none of the work. Like, yeah. of course, they're never going to <laughs> choose me. But there was a time for a brief like year or so that I had deluded myself. Like, I just have to be in the right place at the right time. And of course, because I know all the history of late night. And should I be worried? How I went from Steve Allen to Jack Parr to yeah, Johnny I'm Carson and how Letterman was like, screwed here. over. And, and then he went over to CBS and, all, and then Conan was screwed over. And, like, I know all this stuff. Oh, my God. And obsess about it. That like You should sleep more. Like, you shouldn't be up <laughs> watching TV at 11.30 at night. Oh, I am not allowed on uh, on NBC property anymore. They just, they just do not allow me to be there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been wondering why you're taking so many trips to New York. It's not Broadway. It's not Broadway. <laughs> right. I'm, trying to get onto that, I'm trying to get onto that Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I'll say this. I mean, I'm not a late night guy, and I, I do find Jimmy Fallon both funny and obnoxious but his uh his game show ripoffs uh, mm -hmm. i've been watching password it's pretty good it's mm -hmm. pretty fun mm -hmm. yeah i i don't know if it's just of its time but there were a couple of shots pretty good in the reception area and there's one more where i just i felt like i was watching clockwork orange uh, there was something oh, you bring yeah. that up yeah 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 clockwork orange yeah there's definitely elements of that 
Um, and again, I think that's what it brings out that you almost were anticipating that ultra violence to happen, yeah. and then it never actually happens. I don't know, it's like a compressed perspective. I, I remember we were talking about uh, Clockwork, and he was using that wide thing to change yeah. the perspective. Maybe it's a little bit of that, but that claustrophobia, maybe there's just something unnatural about a camera shot where you can see an entire room and the character. I, I don't know. I'm, we're not you know, directors or cinematographers or people that understand uh, movie lenses that well, but uh, mm -hmm. there were some really interesting pieces in it. Um, yeah, I think, it, it, again, I think it works into that feeling of just being a little bit off throughout the entire movie. I also think that the undercurrent, which is fascinating, there is that one scene where he's in like kind of like the waiting area and the female producer yes. comes out and she's like, listen, you have good timing. You have actually You're not kind a bad of, comic. Yeah, you yeah, have a bad comic, yeah. but go and get some experience first. Yes, it's a polite fuck off. Like, I get that. But also, it's not bad advice. Like, so they're actually giving him oh, the good advice. advice, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's the right advice. And then he's just like, no, I deserve to be in front of the camera now. Which then, this is my question to you, because I keep going back and forth. So his actual performance that we see because we see him come up from the curtain and it cuts away so we don't actually see Is his set <laughs> yeah right and then he goes to the bar and we then see it from the television's perspective which i also think is an interesting choice that we're watching a television yeah. uh, do yeah. a set do you think he's actually funny no um but it's hard you know at that point i, I think this is the point at that point now that we understand how twisted he is and mm -hmm. that the bits are actually not jokes, particularly at the end when he's talking about having kidnapped. Yes, right, uh, right, right. I remember. I can't remember. You know, Jerry Lewis's character's name Jerry uh, Langford, in order to be I on think. the show. Yeah. So it's like you know they put the and then they use the laugh track, which we've become more cynical about. I think that in the eighties we wouldn't necessarily distrust a laugh track. Like I think it was still common knowledge even in the eighties that laugh tracks are used in television, but. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd assume that people only laugh when it's funny. Right. You know, that kind of guy is stuff I'm more cynical about now. But whether it's funny or not, it's really hard to dissect. Actually, that's a good question. Do we see, do we see an audience? Uh, yes. We, well, we so see there's... the bleachers, like the stands, and we yeah. see some people coming up. I don't okay. think we ever see a, an actual camera shot of the audience um, like you would see in Quisha or something. But, I only bring this up because I think what we're meant to believe is that people are laughing at his jokes. Are they being goosed by additional laughter? Potentially, I don't know. But it does seem like people are responding to it. But I think what the fascinating way that De Niro portrays that is like, you can tell he's super nervous and he's like awkward a little bit to be there because it's kind of the first time he's actually in front of a real audience telling jokes. And so I think the first couple of laughs throw him off a bit, which is which is true as comedians will say that, like the first time someone actually laughs in a crowd setting, it throws you off your rhythm a little bit. So I think he portrays it well. And I think, but I also think you're geared to laugh when you come into one of those shows. So it's like you hear the yes. patter and the rhythm is like, oh, that's a joke. I'm going to laugh now because that's what you're supposed well, to do. That's how I become so cynical about stand-up comedy because we watch it at home. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when I watch a Netflix, let's say a Netflix comedy special, a half time we turn it off because the first five jokes, you know, they ha it almost sounds candle laughter. You can see people like pissing themselves in the audience. But I start thinking, at least for me, the joke is not funny. So did it take that one idiot to laugh and then everybody else felt compelled to? Right. And like you said, I, I didn't know there was a term goosing, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it builds up of its own accord and then it's not about the material anymore. So in this right. case, it, it was hard for me. I was thinking about that too, when he's performing, I'm like, is this actually funny? I mean, De Niro's good at delivering the lines like a stand-up comedian, like yeah. the, the rhythm of it. But I know now that he's completely out of his fucking mind. Yes. So then you have to ask like, should I be laughing? 
<laughs> so you're like, oh. Well, know. yeah, there's, there's all these elements too, right? Like he even ends that off, like you mentioned about how um, I'm actually not joking and you're going to find this out tomorrow that I'm actually not joking about this part and you're going to think I'm crazy, but like he wants you to know what, what, what's going through his thought process at that point. But I think that the female uh, producer is actually right. It's like, I think a, a workshopping it a bit, you can, oh, the bones yeah. are there. Yeah. Like the one joke that actually did make me laugh is the fact, like, I forget how it gets set up. It's something like, maybe when my mother would come and see me, which would be oh. weird because she'd been dead for nine years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like that, like, it just takes a, what comedy does, right? You make a setup and then it, you, you pull the rug out from other one, from, from somebody. So it's like, that's, I, I think that's funny, but it's probably the only joke that I found funny that he says. But anyways, I think it's just interesting to see that he's not like the top of his game. He's not the worst either. He's like this this weird. He's practiced so often in, in his own head that he has a bit of a rhythm going. But yeah, you put him up in some stand-up club and he's going to be like stone-faced probably yeah, he's by the people bomb. in there. I don't know enough about stand-up comedy as a craft, but from what I gleaned, particularly in the last 15 years, because there's so much material about stand-up comedy films and documentaries, yeah. etc., is that, uh, yeah, you, you have to bomb for yes. it to get out of your head uh, about what you think is funny. And then there's this, uh, I mean, celebrity culture ties into this, this idea of how much you have to play to your audience. So the joke may not be funny for you anymore, right? but you know that if you play it a certain way and your audience is a certain type of person. Yeah. That they'll find some part of it enjoyable, right? Is this a bad time to tell you I'm doing my first stand-up set this weekend? Please bring a friend. And I do watch those documentaries and listen to those podcasts quite a bit. But the other thing I noticed, and someone with a deeper sense of comedy history can probably step in and correct me, but even by the 80s, like his actual material is dated to a certain extent. Because it's all a lot about like outside stuff. It's He's not really talking about stuff that's going on in his life really well i mean seinfeld would still be funny into the 90s doing the same thing yeah, I guess observational that's true. comedy i'm just saying like the the top top comedians even like the like the eddie murphy's of this time and that sort of thing still pretty topical i don't know i have this more introspective existential stuff is like 2000s you know, I, in mm -hmm. my opinion, where people are talking about their own sex life, that's an Andrew Dice Clay kind of thing coming yeah. out of the 90s where making fun of themselves or other people for their internal thinking, I think. I mean, I, I, this is a broad generalization for somebody who doesn't actually go to stand-up comedy shows. But if I just take a temperature of what, let's say even film, comedies and film focus on, you know, we don't see much pratfalls anymore, right? Even some of the more slapstick guys like Will Ferrell, whatever, they still have to do intellectual twists, even if they're being stupid, because we're expecting that emotional thing. I think that's why there's only dramedies now. People can't handle silliness, even cartoons. Everybody's got to like die. I think the pendulum <laughs> is actually slowly swinging back the other way. I think there's going to be so. a boom in like the next few years of like, we're just going to be completely silly. For I hope so. I miss that. We need lightheartedness in this mm -hmm. time of Armageddon. And we're all about to die anyways. Like, why not laugh? Go and watch Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, baby. <laughs> it's not available anywhere. I know. But... It's a, um, okay. The last thing I want to do before we get into the backstory here is the actual ending. Because I think that mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, debate about how you're supposed to read the ending itself. So okay. for you, do you believe that what we're seeing is real? Where, like... He goes to jail, oh, he comes back out, gets his own I TV think so. show, that sort of thing. Are we supposed to think that that's real? I think so. I think that the, for me, the, the message of this movie is that worshiping celebrities is inherently problematic. 
mm-hmm. and that we are seeking fame. Uh, sorry, we're seeking to worship famous people not because of any positive talent, but just for the sake of notoriety. Because we will see uh, many criminals, many convicted killers, many people who participate in political crimes become best-selling authors, yes, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's. Uh, I don't think that was new in 1982, and I I think that's the point of this whole film uh, story, I should say, that uh, what's wrong is not Pupkin. I mean, he's wrong. He's psychotic. But the culture that encourages that to be possible because, Jesus, what's his name? Jack? The Jerry Lewis character? Yeah. Jerry Jerry Langford. Langford. Can't go anywhere. I mean, he's mobbed even before- Um, before De Niro finds him. So I think there's something to that. I I think it's real. It's sick. Yeah, it, it, that, that's what it feels real because a lot of the people that were involved in the making of this did have their own stalkers. So they yeah. actually talk about like they put a lot of the stuff that they well, were feeling story and that, experiencing. Yeah, De Niro, part of his method training when for this was to, a stalker. to yeah. go visit a stalker. There, I can understand why people think it might be illusory because that very final scene where he can't get a reaction and it kind of fades the audio out when he, does he tell a joke? I can't remember. He's no, he just doesn't. standing there. To your yeah. point, when he does his first set, I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing yet. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could read that either way, but. Scorsese has been very um, evasive with this question, like where he's like, you can make up whatever you want. He mentions Powell and Pressburger in their films, like fantasy and reality just intertwined so it's like yeah there's just it is a thing so you can choose if this is completely fantasy completely real somewhere in between i just know as what you just mentioned would absolutely happen if this happened where someone kidnapped jimmy fallon and was able to get 10 minutes on his show to do this little stand-up set people would buy that book a thousand percent every book agent in the world would be coming after that person yep. to get their uh, exclusive story oprah would want to sit down with them there would probably be a network special or something somewhere that would happen that doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility but i think the final shot does for me this is how i'm personally reading it because it, it de Niro's face does have this kind of awkward look on it to me i think he's being confronted with oh this is what fame actually is and i'm terrified of it mm-hmm. <laughs> i thought this is what i wanted and now i've discovered what fame is actually doing oh. it's fun it's fine to be on the outside wanting fame but being in the inside of it is also has its own bit of scariness to it. So, again, part of the reason why I like this movie a lot. You fucking freak. Let's see some backstory. This opened on December 18th, 1982 in Iceland, and then released in America a few weeks after. Currently, it is rated 4.1 on Letterboxd, has a 7.8 on IMDb, a 73 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, from 66 critics, it has an 89%. And from 25,000 plus users, it has a 90%. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. Currently available to purchase or rent on iTunes or YouTube. And in Canada, you can stream it on Stars or Disney+. Plus. So this is like one of the few movies where it's like, it's pretty much anywhere. <laughs> you can really go and get this anywhere you want. This was, uh, we haven't mentioned this before, a box office bomb. Its budget was $19 million and would make... Two and a half. <laughs> so at $7.6 million it would make. So this was uh, considered a huge failure at the time. Its plot description is, Rupert Pupkin is a passionate yet unsuccessful comic who craves nothing more than to be in the spotlight and to achieve this. What? <laughs> who craves nothing more than to be in the spotlight and to achieve this. Oh, I see how they're doing this. God, that's a run-on sentence. Let me start this over again. Robert Pupkin just leave is a it. Pa- just leave it as it is, because it doesn't make sense anyway. So. You know, Robert Pupkin. You just have to, and you have to like uh, force certain words to be ex- accented. Robert Pupkin is a passionate yet unsuccessful comic who craves nothing more than to be in the spotlight, and to achieve this, 
He stalks and kidnaps his idol to make the spotlight for himself. That's one sentence. That's one sentence, but the comma is also in the wrong spot. Is that the tagline? <laughs> well, talking about that, it is time to play Guess <laughs> That Tag. Put on my blazer, long microphone from, Bar oh, Bar from Bob Barker. D Dave, you might be going to the theater and you're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to really check out... Uh, bulb kill my darlings signs. or whatever that yeah. one is with uh, harry styles currently that's going on what okay no but you yes. will be yeah you're, yeah you're your total styles head over here love love him and on the posters of course there's a little uh, sentence or a witticism that makes you encouraged mm. to go and see that film yes wit one of these is a real tagline that was on the movie poster to this movie two of the other ones are completely made up by me was it he thinks he's funny is it here's Rupert, or is it It's No Laughing Matter? <laughs> Hopefully none of them. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go three. Wow, yeah, you nailed it. It's No Laughing oh, Matter is the nice. real one. This does star Robert De Niro as Robert Pupkin, Jerry Lewis as Jerry Langford, Sandra Bernhard as Masha, and Diane Abbott as Rita Keen. S speaking of your second made-up one, did you know they were trying to cast Robert De Niro in The Shining? Oh, no, I didn't know that, mm -hmm, but that's, mm -hmm. but that's fascinating. Yeah, funny. Yeah, that's so we've talked about most of these people. Do you want to say anything else about Diane Abbott? I think that's the only one we haven't really delved no, into a whole didn't... lot here. Didn't do a whole lot after this. No, she's, she's good in this. Uh, I was surprised to find out they were married. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just gossipy stuff. She had a child from another marriage. Yeah. He adopted her. But he adopted they raised them, kids yeah. together. Yeah. He's, he's since had two other wives and a bunch of kids, you know, just from a controversy, didn't he? De Niro's uh, potentially an anti-vaxxer and he's mm -hmm. got that whole tax evasion thing and someone tried to kill him with a bomb. You know, there's a lot of nuanced stuff. I think he had a stalker too. It's he just, did. you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. This is my point with celebrity. We worship these people. If you say Robert De Niro and you think, oh, great actor, but then you see that they're politicized, they're human beings, they're politicized, yeah. they say weird things. You know, how can you be a staunch Democrat and an anti-vaxxer? You're like, that's not possible, but it is, it's happening. People are complex, so. people, that's yeah. the thing, it's like, is my biggest frustration when people are like, oh, this one person has this set of belief, well, now I hate everything they've ever done. And like, outside of, I don't know, like extreme, like racism or something like that, I'm like, I mean, can I grow up? <laughs> I don't know, yeah. people are weird and complex and have weird opinions about different things. It's tough, right? I I mean, I, I think if it's something that you strongly believe in, it's okay to have it colored, right? Like, mm -hmm. can I say that I don't like Lethal Weapon because Mel Gibson came out as an anti-Semite? Uh, it's hard, right? I don't want to like his personal beliefs, but Mad Max is still a good movie. This is like the eternal question that is constantly debated online and everywhere else. But it's like, if, if, if the that is The tarnishing of the career, right? Yeah, if that is a stumbling block for you, then yeah, like no one's forcing you to watch that movie. Exactly. Yeah, great. You don't have to watch it or enjoy it or, or like it. I, I Where I'm like, okay, let's stop here. You cannot say that is a bad movie because you don't like Mel Gibson. Or delete it. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, there's, what was it? Just on Criterion. You know, Criterion's doing this thing now where they put almost like an explicit language warning. They're like, there are racial de depictions, there's yeah. depictions. I think we need to do that more than just saying like, we need to burn the negatives of right. every film, you know, Roman Polanski ever did because of the idea that he was attracted, what is it, a 14 year old girl or whatever yeah. the allegations are. Even our most hate, our virulently hated film, Death in Venice. <laughs> right. You know, it's not that they shouldn't burn that film. You know, we should just have our opinions whether we watch it. I just don't think it should be as revered as it is. That's yeah, my so personal it's like, opinion. 
So those are two different things. It's just interesting. I think this is why I try to be measured about celebrity worship, but it's hard. We want to latch on to this idea that people are what they seem with what we look like, uh, how they appear to us. And they're not, Kyle. We're all they're crazy. Not. Cinematography for this movie was by Fred Schuler, whose top four on IMDb are this movie, The Woman in Red from 1984, Arthur from 1981, and Fletch from 1985. Although he did- uh, Can you believe they made another Fletch? I can't wait to watch it. I've I've been hearing good things about it, so I'm excited to check it out. I don't think the first two hold up all that well. No. So did- Chevy Chase and other Prattfall guys not holding up very well. Yeah. By the way, because I recently watched the first two Fletch movies for the first time- I want I wanted to track the exact moment because in the first movie, it's like, okay, charming, interesting Chevy Chase. And the second one, which is like five, six years later, seven years he's later, already, he's completely checked out and does not want to be broken. in that movie. Yeah. It's like, when did that happen? When did that exact moment happen where you stop caring? I know stuff like that we'll never truly know. But when you mm-hmm. see those things where people have that psychic break, whatever's mm-hmm. happened, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also on an outlier where I think a lot of National Lampoon movies are overrated. I... Well, yeah. there you go. There you go, yeah. folks. Uh, what's your feelings on Caddyshack? Uh, the last time I watched it, which was maybe eight years ago, it's dated. I actually just watched it for Bill Murray acting like an idiot. And uh, Well, isn't it, it's been so long since I watched it, but I think even the people who made it are like, there really isn't a plot to that movie. No, it's just, it's just it's, a bunch it's of sketches for yeah. an hour and a half. And I'm also not a huge Rodney Dangerfield fan, so okay, it's fine. hard because he's like a pretty central comedic mm-hmm. piece visually. And uh, I mean, that's funny, but it's it's very wow. dated from what I Give remember. Give no respect over here. All right. Written by Paul D. Zimmerman, directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, the writer, Paul Zimmerman, started out as a film critic for Newsweek magazine and was there from 1967 to 1975. So, you know, a fairly substantial run. Quits that job in pursuit of becoming a screenwriter. He does find work in, in of all places, Sesame Street. So he writes for nice. that show in its early years. Then wrote this screenplay for this movie. And as a just complete footnote, he was a Republican, part of the Republican Party. And he holds a distinction for being the only delegate to vote against Ronald Reagan at the Republican National mm. Convention in the year he, he was elected it. president. He saw yeah. something. Zimmerman was inspired by two things. The first was an article that he read in Esquire magazine about autograph hunters and what they do in order to find the most lucrative celebrity signatures. The second was a longtime stalker of Johnny Carson. So he mashed those two ideas together to make this movie. Now, whoever got it to Robert De Niro, that I don't know. But De Niro loves this script enough that he buys the rights to it. He's like, I want to make this, either as producer or star. And at the very first, he wants Michael Cimino to direct it. Cimino was coming off of The Deer Hunter, uh, Best Picture, Best Director winner. And he's interested to do it, but his other project, Heaven's Gate, was taking up too much of his time and he drops out. Do you know about Heaven's Gate? No. This That film by all accounts, killed Samino's career, and it also killed United Artists as an independent studio. It, is, ah. it was such a bomb that it killed the studio. What is Heaven's Gate? It was a big debacle. You can read up about it. It's been uh, kind of reevaluated in recent years, but it's been a big debacle at the time. Not, is it Warren Beat? No. No, who is it? It's uh, Je- Jeff Bridges is in that movie? No. Anyways, the next though. person to, to become interested is Bob Fosse. He flirts with being... This being the next project after all that jazz, he wants to cast Andy Kaufman as Pupkin, which I think, cool idea. Sammy Davis Jr. Too sick. Yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. is Jerry, but ultimately, but ultimately he decides to go off and make Star 80 instead. Have you seen Star 80? No. I watched that for the first time this year. That is an un- aggressively unpleasant movie to watch. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, like, oh my God. It's based on a true story. Okay. About a Canadian young girl actress who gets coerced to like pose for Playboy and her, this sleazy manager dude. Eventually what he does, because he is the one who wants to be famous and he thinks he's being overshadowed now by her. So uh, trigger warning coming up here about aggressive violence against women, uh, shoots her and then rapes her corpse. Good. That's what that Good. movie is about. Nice. And at the end of it, I was like, well, I'm going to go take a shower now because that was awful. <laughs> that was an awful experience. Wow. Really brought the mood down with that one. So Scorsese comes aboard. And we already mentioned about how this was like this weird period in his life. He intentionally sets out to make this the anti-raging bull in that he didn't want overly artistic shots. He wanted this grittier feel. And he also took inspiration from silent film and how to place the cameras and just let the action play out. De Niro, as we mentioned, went full method for this. He tracked down his own stalker and talked to him. He would also go to comedy clubs so that he could get the rhythm down on how to speak like a comedian. For the talk show host role, actually, I, before I go on with the rest of this, I was actually really thinking about this, again, how... I think perfect Jerry Lewis is in the casting of this movie because he's like exactly the right age. He has kind of the right amount of star power ish. Mm. I couldn't think of another person who they could have cast except for one other person, weirdly enough, that they did. They did think about. Do do you have any any guesses on who you might have also went with? The only other person I was thinking about was Dean Martin. There's like they they could have asked him. Dean Martin. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he might have been good at that. But I think can you do dark? That's what I mean. I think think Lewis was like the better choice overall because they thought about the Rat Pack, either Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra. But ultimately, it was just like, no, let's go with Lewis and ask him. Lewis would add in some extra suggestions that he'd encountered uh, around his own life. So specifically, the I hope you die of cancer thing that that one woman yells at him. Yeah, that was crazy. Literally happened in his own life, apparently. Not surprised. Which you see that online all the time. Like, I love this person. I love this person. One slight, hated them all my life. Think they should die. Like, there's like this huge, like, fickleness that happens with celebrities well, that, too. Uh, cult psychology, right? You associate, mm. you associate your entire existence to one concept, yeah. mega, and then it, <laughs> it makes you completely devoid of any pragmatic reality, right? And as yeah. soon as you break that, you're, it's not like, just the reputation that it's yourself. Yeah, like, you know, that's your what entire means. definition of yourself is gone. When you've tied yourself so much yeah. to one thing, yeah, it's like when something when the pieces fall, it's like now my own world, my is whole life over, yeah. right? What I eat for breakfast is ruined because Johnny mm-hmm. Carson wouldn't sign my autograph. Right, but that's right. how people are like, right? It's fucking weird. I don't know how you, I, like honestly. I don't know how you pull people out of that. Like you have to have some sort of self reflection, do you not, they in have order to, to actually yeah, get past that? They have to do it themselves, but. To do that themselves, they have to work through not knowing what to eat for breakfast. And that's right. tough, Kyle. It's tough. Eggs? How do you do your eggs? Uh, yeah, right. right. <laughs> Johnny Carson doesn't like you. How do you... Is it not over easy anymore? It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Yeah. I just like mine with as much shells in it as possible. <laughs> the uh, As we mentioned, the tone and style were seen as these departures for Scorsese. And it was met with a bit of befuddlement by critics. Ooh, good word. Still positive to mixed reviews at the time it was released in 1982 but bombed at the box office. In subsequent years, though, it has been reappraised somewhat as being one of Scorsese's best. Bennett Miller and Steve Carell both loved the movie and used it as the basis for their film Foxcatcher. Jack Black wanted to do a remake of it. Uh, Akira Kurosawa considered it one of his favorite films of all time. And then, I mean, we, we kind of have alluded to it. The Joker uses this as a pretty big template for that movie. Yeah. Just adds the violence. In. They do go the ultra violence, right? They yeah. do end it with a gun to the face instead of it 
having the simmering tension play out. And they bring it. De Niro into it, so you know that miscast. By the way, I think <laughs> yeah. he's totally miscast in that movie. But they wanted to do it, right? To I know. I know why he's cast. I know. Should have cast Sandra Bernhardt in that in that role. Am I right? <laughs> Actually, maybe. By the way, I will say the sequel to the Joker has me so intrigued. Have you written? Have you read yeah, anything about musical, it? Musical Lady Gaga. I don't know. So you make it a musical with Lady Gaga. Super I mean, weird. at this point, with what they've announced on it, it can only be two things for me. One of my favorite things ever or complete dog shit. And I can't wait to find out what it is. <laughs> like, there's there's no in-between that that movie is going to be for we'll me. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Lastly, apparently, there was a musical being considered that they were going to adapt this into on Broadway. But I don't think that what? ever went or amounted to anything. So I think that was Sondheim's last project. It was a good movie, I think. It kind of, I mean, this is why I brought up Clockwork Orange. It harkens back to the 70s where mm-hmm. it is not trying to shy away from that tension, right? It's not trying to resolve itself in a positive pro American consumerist, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, but everything turned out fine. It's actually doing the inverse. We're like, look at where we're going. You know, you guys are worshiping celebrities. You're going to fucking die. <laughs> I mean, like, critics were a little bit like confused by this, but I wonder if that's what. Like initial audiences also felt like, well, I don't like what this is saying about. I think so. Us. It's a mirror, right? It's a mirror. Like by '82, we're seeing. Uh, I mean, it's always been like that in America. We worship celebrities and movie actors, but by '82, it's getting so plastic. So art, like, is starting to turn that way. So it must have been upsetting to hear about a movie. It, it's. Tense as this film is, I do think that there's these like little elements of comedy that do really sure, sure. work for me too, which is I love how everyone mispronounces his name. Like it's never said right throughout most of this entire film, except at the very end. The whole sweater thing yeah. is such a great comedy routine, but it's so weird at that time. It's like, well, I think it looks great on him. And I, I, I went out anyways, that whole thing when they're kidnapping him is great. Well, he's got a couple of quips too, when he's like interchanging with strangers or with the, uh, yeah. whatever the ladies that runs the production team. You know, he, he is funny, yeah. right? It's just, uh, it makes you question yourself when you have mm-hmm. a giggle and you're like, am I the crazy one? I think the best line that Sandra Bernhard delivers is the, uh, I love you. I've never told my mm. parents that I love them, but I yeah. love you. I'm going to say that. I'm like, you are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's great. She does uh, mm. nutty like nobody else. Uh, it is fascinating. You know, we've talked a lot about the Oscars of this year that uh, at the very least, like Sandra Bernhard doesn't get nominated. Jerry Lewis doesn't get nominated. Yeah. You would think in the supporting categories, they would have been able to squeak in. But Well, when we do the end of the year and we catalog who's um, nominated, we'll see. There's been a lot of very impactful films yeah. this year, so it's it's tough. I mean, we don't ever know how the balloting actually turns out, like if she was just sixth, sixth or, or eighth something, or yeah. something. Yeah. I just wanted to bring up too, I loved, uh, maybe it's a photography thing, but the opening freeze frame. Mm, how mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. the hand and we see it's almost like a mask you know we know that de niro's there and just holding it there with the flash a that's a fucking hard shot to freeze mm-hmm. because the flash is pretty instantaneous instantaneous and b uh i just love I, from a classic street photography sort of sensibility that idea of timing it to get the thematic uh foreshadowing of what this film's going to be about in that this fucking beautiful. I noticed that too. I was like, yeah, this is, this is, this is beautiful. Uh, so thank Thelma for that. That's <laughs> Thelma Shoemaker right there. She, she knows what she's doing. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up. So let's move into Critics' Choice. This is, of course, the part where we talk about what critics thought at the time of the release of this movie. So both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael did write about this movie. Roger Ebert 
uh, went and saw this movie twice. A lot of his mm-hmm. reviewers talking about his like initial reaction versus his second reaction to this movie because he did not like it the first time he saw it. He in part wrote, I walked out of the first screening filled with dislike for this movie. Dislike, but not disinterest. Memories of the King of Comedy kept gnawing at me, and when people asked me what I thought about it, I said I wasn't sure. Then I went to see the movie a second time, and it seemed to work better for me, maybe because I was able to walk in without any expectations. I knew it wasn't an entertainment, I knew it didn't allow itself an emotional payoff, I knew that the ending was cynical and unsatisfactory, and so, with those discoveries no longer to be made, I was free to simply watch what was on screen. What I saw the second time, better than the first, were the performances by Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, Diane Abbott, and Sandra Bernhardt, who play the movie's most important characters. They must have been difficult performances to deliver, because nobody listens in this film. Everybody's just waiting for the other person to stop talking so that they can start, and everybody's so emotionally isolated in this movie that they don't even seem able to guess what they're missing. You know what I like about that? And I'm not always in line with Ebert, but judging by my letterbox, Mm -hmm. I'm totally going the same way, aren't I? Well, I mean, I I think it's important to, in these types of things, like there is definitely movies that I've talked about in the past where my first initial reaction is like maybe slightly to the negative side, but there's something about it. There's something that keeps like, there's something there that I want to revisit. And then when I revisit it, it's like, oh, okay, this is the part I was missing this first. I was thinking I was coming in for one reason, that was not the movie I was actually being served. So I think it's important when you have those reactions to like, at least allow it a second time to see if you, which way you go. I'm finding the inverse is true for Marvel movies for Mm. me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As soon as I watched the uh, second run, I'm like, oh, Avengers was not actually that good. Well, I, I, the one that for me does it is the the Incredible Hulk, which I mean at the time was like only the second uh, like, MCU. One? Yeah, at the time was only the second MCU movie, and so I was like so lenient. I think when I saw that in theaters, yeah. like it's like it's fine. Yeah. And then every successive watch, you can look on Letterbox like half a star off, half a star off, half a star off. It just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. So Pauline Kale hated this movie. Oh, I should say Robert e- Roger Ebert eventually gave this three out of four stars. Okay. Pauline Kale did not like this movie, and she writes in part in most of De Niro's early performances, Mean Streets, The Godfather Part Two, Taxi Driver, and New York, New York. There was bravura in his acting. You could feel the actor's excitement shining through the character, and it made him exciting to watch. And then. He started turning himself into repugnant flesh effigies of soulless characters. Rupert is chunky and thick-nosed, and he has a foul, greasy mustache. Is it so De Niro can remove himself further from the character and condescend to him even physically? Rupert waves his arms when he talks. They work in pairs, as if he didn't have the brains to move them independently of each other. De Niro cunningly puts in all of the stupid things that actors customarily leave out. It's a studied performance. De Niro has learned to be a total fool. Big accomplishment. What De Niro is doing might be based on the Warholian idea that the best parody of a thing is the thing itself. It's interesting that Pauline Kale at this point has become so embittered. She misses her broken macho man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's incredible the ones that she named. It yeah? is interesting, right? Like she really does like the macho-ness of, of, of yeah. the cinema. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dave, we should ask the question that we ask every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Yes, I think so. I mean, Hold Up is a tough one just because it is shot in an 80s gritty style. So I don't know mm-hmm. if it'll speak to a younger, modern audience, but I think it's fantastic. I think it's shot really well. You do have to do uh, what we were talking about and get out of the idea that this is going to be a good fellas, right? Right. This is yeah, not yeah. a raging not. bull. No. And then thematically, they still make stories about this. Never mind the Joker, but mm-hmm. you know, this obsession with being famous is a very problematic thing. Uh, part of our culture. I think the thing that I really noticed this time that we keep coming back to, I think that the trick to this movie 
And the genius of this movie is it it never actually devolves into violence. There's yeah. always the idea that that's going to happen. And I think that's why we get so tense. We never get a release. Like even at the end, there's not really a release that we get. Like he doesn't, he isn't held accountable. No one gets shot in the face. Like everyone makes it out, but well, everyone's two, almost like worse for it. Two years of a six year sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. A complete miscarriage of justice, might I add. All right. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what David, oh, I should, I didn't answer. I'm a yes and yes as well. Before we get into rating that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also upload videos onto YouTube. You can check out those like short, compacted reviews. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterboxed page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what are you going to give The King of Comedy? Kind of tore. I think I'm going to give it a four. I okay. I I really like this movie, but, you know, I didn't like, for example, shoehorning the lawyer in. I didn't. There's a couple of pieces where it breaks it up for me uh, in the storytelling. And then, as you described, leaving a movie tormented... <laughs> <laughs> but my own cynical idea of celebrity is, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. But uh, could it be a 4.5 maybe? You know, I don't think it's perfect. But uh, I really liked watching it. And we have a lot to talk about it. So I'll yeah. go with a 4. I'll go with a 4. Well, like I said, I do think it's perfect. So it's a 5 out of 5 for me over here. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I was also thinking I got to counterbalance your 5, which I see is coming. Because uh, yeah. I don't know if it's perfect. So that's going to average to a 4.5 on our letterbox list. So right. do we put this above or below First Blood? Oh, wow. For me, I think it's below, but I can, yeah, you can make a case that this is more cerebral, so we can put it above. Um, well, how yeah. about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? Yeah, entertainment value. Star Trek II yeah. is imminently more rewatchable. I, I was just texting you i'm downloading <laughs> clips for our youtube video and i, I made me want to watch the movie again. yeah exactly <laughs> like, that's so what happens <laughs> i think this is what we do i think for me i think this is a better made movie than first blood but star trek 2 is definitely the more entertaining like the more rewatchable movie mm -hmm. out of the two i think so let's, oh, we'll put it right in between them let's do that we'll put it right sure. in between them entering our list at the new number four position is the king of comedy it's right below star trek 2 right above first blood pretty good pretty good so we should probably see what we are going to see next week here dave i mean it is the start of the spooky season the uh, ghosts and goblins are all coming out of their graves and Did they're you here. see the ad for criterion what's coming out in october I know, all the 80s horrors there so right now. it's great maybe maybe we won't mm -hmm. have to pay for any of these things let me push this button Oh, Dave, it's going to be a lively discussion next week, I'm very sure, because I'm pretty sure both of us are going to hate this movie, but we'll see. We're going to talk about Friday the 13th, part three. Oh, okay. Either way, gross. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to enjoy the next four weeks. Am I? <laughs> I don't know. There could be Why some good ones like coming up. Why do people like horror movies? All right. Oh, get up yourself. All right. <laughs> well, go back to chopping trees. Uh, like filing them. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard work, but it's rewarding, Kyle. It's like mm. honest, it's honest labor. All of my stalkers are pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs>